being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong all right now we are joined here yet again by recluse aka steven snyder who heads up the farm podcast and who has also published a number of books uh steven's been on the show before for some very interesting discussions now, today we actually have a special occasion. The publication of his new book, which is The Art, The Secret History of Cywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality. How are you doing today, Recluse? Doing awesome, sir, and thank you again for having me on program to chill. It's always a pleasure here, and I guess fittingly enough, we're maybe seeing a bit of the other side of some of the stuff I discussed concerning Dr. Strangelove previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely uh no okay so this is your third book right yes sir the first one was a book i co-wrote with frank zero strange tales of the parapolitical post-war nazis mercenaries and other secret history the second one was a special relationship trump emstein and the secret history of the anglo-american establishment book one and this is number three excellent no i definitely (laughs) uh it's good stuff i read the first one read the second one haven't finished the third one yet, but uh, I think we can still have a very good conversation here. Let's see. So let me think. Going into it, what is this? Okay, first of all, let me just ask you the cover. The cover really grabs people's attention. And uh, everyone I know who was who heard about your book was praising the cover. So... I don't know if I'll make it the episode art, if that's okay, but definitely if, if not like check out this cover and do you want to describe for listeners what's going on there? Yeah, it was, it was kind of a struggle uh, to come up with the cover. See, originally this was supposed to be uh, just a single book. And then I think when I had written somewhere around 200,000 words or so, I was like, yeah, this this is going to have to be split up. For those of you uh, wondering, 200,000 words is like bordering on war and peace, you know, type of uh, mm-hmm. length. So, yeah, and I was only maybe like two thirds of the way done, maybe even only halfway done. So, yeah, needless to say, it wasn't going to fly as a single book. But all the way up through that process, I had had a real specific cover in mind it was which i probably will end up using for the third book anyway but it was going to be uh essentially these figures like five of them sit sitting at kind of a gaming table playing dungeons and dragons or some variation on it with figurines on the left hand side of the uh, table you were going to have um Oh, gosh, I can't remember his name now. Johannes something, the guy who's usually thought to be the author of the Russian Crucian Manifestos. Mm. And next to him would be uh, Robert Anton Wilson. And then on the other side, you would have a figure in military fatigues with a black hood and a Q thing over his head. And then next to him would be a figure in a black suit with a uh, blue jay probably mask over his head and then the center of it would be uh carrie thornley uh, about to throw the apple of uh Eris. so anyways most of those figures don't necessarily appear in this book it wasn't going to work so i had to come up with something different and uh you know up until really almost the very end i was kind of struggling because i wanted something that was going to be equally 
outlandish, but how do I fit in all the different threads and characters in it? And then I think I, you know, it just sort of inadvertently thought, well, well, maybe the the center point of the book is ultimately U.S. nuclear policy or what might be shrouded behind it. And that had led me immediately to think of, of all things, Second Planet of the Apes movie, because there's a cult that survives in it that mm. worships the atomic bomb. And I was like, well, that's kind of like what the, the people that I'm writing about are. They're like a cult that worship nuclear policy almost. And I remembered the um, the picture of it, one of the movie posters was really gnarly. So I went back and looked at it and I was like, yeah, this would be perfect. And it, it also sort of fits the era because a lot, I mean, obviously the book sort of covers things from roughly uh, the First World War up to about the 80s or so, early 90s. But a lot of it's really focused around the 60s and 70s. And I thought it had that, you know, that sort of classic Hollywood feel to it as well, which was really fitting with some of the characters that I was going to chronicle in it. Very so, cinematic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I knew it would be eye-catching and it seemed to fit a lot. And just, I don't know, it was one of those great kind of happy accidents that came together at the last minute. On top of that, my artist is fantastic too, Elma, um, out of Italy. She did the the um, special relationship cover as well. And I'm sure I'll be having her do the uh, the following covers too. I mean, she is just, she's the best. Yeah, no, definitely. So let's see here. So the book is about, of course, Cywork and Spiritainment and the Shattering of Reality. But... Let's see here. I mean, for one thing, one figure looms quite prominently in the book. Well, actually, let me let me ask you about something else before we get into that. So I, early on in the book, you kind of lay out details about the American Security Council. And I do think that this is something a lot of people don't know about. But how is the what is the American Security Council and how does it relate to the rest of the book? Well, the ASC was, I suppose, in a lot of ways, almost the genesis for this project. Um, you know, for those of you unfamiliar with my prior work, the American Security Council is a group that I've been writing about for quite a few years now, um, going all the way back to my blogging days with Visa, uh, continuing you know, essentially on to the present day. So this was also the sort of accumulation of years and years of research into the origins of the American Security Council, and it wasn't, which wasn't really even something that I had set out to do, but I thought as, you know, the book developed that I had to get into that, because my research, uh, where specifically I had gone to the Carlisle Barracks in um, Pennsylvania, uh, Russ Ballant's recommendation, no less, uh, Russ is the author of um, Old Nazis, the new right in the Republican Party and the Corps connection, for those of you unfamiliar, fantastic researcher. Uh, but he had actually previously done a lot of the really top research in the ASC. And I had asked him where he had gotten a lot of the information on it. And he had told me about the Carlisle Barracks. So I was finally able to get around to venturing out to this facility, which has most of the records of the National Military Industrial Conferences, which is what the ASC grew out of, and more or less. So these were a series of meetings that were held between 1955 and 1961 uh, in conjunction with the National Security Council, the Pentagon, 
uh, several major universities and many major Fortune 500 companies that were involved in defense, like Motorola, um, Honeywell, Lockheed, you know, all the usual suspects. And the sort of recurring theme for a lot of these conferences, well, they had several purposes, but a big thing was essentially how you could indoctrinate uh, both the heads of the corporations, the military, and just average rank-and-file Americans, but especially trade unions, in anti-communism. And a facility that they had launched for this, uh, for the basic purpose of looking into this, was the Institute for American Strategy. And it really looking at the records of Carlo made it clear that the um the ISA or IAS rather was the real purpose of these conferences. They essentially wanted to create a full-blown political warfare bureau, if you will, to churn out uh, this you know, really increasingly fanatical anti-communism. So right around the same time, um, the American Security Council, a kind of proto version of it had been launched. I think it was in 1955. And I, I can't remember the name of it now. I think it was like the Midwest Research Agency or something like that. But it was essentially when it started out, a kind of glorified uh, Pinkerton operation, right? You know, it was set up by John Fisher and all of these other ex-FBI guys, and they were basically going to compile all of these blacklists on unionists and so forth, and they would sell them to many of the leading defense contractors in the country so that they could assess whether or not people could be hired for jobs in these industries. And, you know, again, this was a covert way of enforcing a blacklist for decades and a lot of well-paying jobs in America. Uh, and But there were a lot of other organizations that did this kind of stuff. What really set the ASC apart was when it became linked with the ISA uh, around 58 or 59 or something like that, when they started to bring John Fisher into the fold with this. And from there, the ASC increasingly turned into a kind of hybrid private detective slash private intelligence agency, a think tank, and also a lobby and um, propaganda outfit, effectively. It was quite ambitious, and at least one researcher described it by the 1980s, I think, as being, what was it, um, uh, the heart, if not the very soul of the military industrial complex. Mm. So it was it was essentially the Heritage Foundation or something like that until about roughly the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s, when some of the new wave groups like Heritage and the Council for National Policy started to surpass it. So the OK, so the American Security Council, a lot of irons in a lot of fires. A lot of things going lobbying think tank private <laughs> intelligence many different things what was its I, I know you mentioned but what was its relationship to the ias and what was the ias well the institute for american strategy was effectively the governing body behind uh the american security council and then I think it was around like maybe 78 or something like that. The two bodies merged into one, becoming uh, the American Security Foundation, which incidentally kind of seems to be right around the time the operations of the ASC started to um, 
They just weren't as important at that point as what was being done by Heritage or the CMP or something, let's just say. Uh, I think that a lot of the the real talent, I guess, was being reshuffled to different organizations by then as they were going into a different phase of the Cold War or something to that effect. Uh, but anyway, the uh, the Institute for American Strategy was effectively a full-blown political warfare bureau uh, that is highly significant on a lot of levels and has been almost totally neglected by previous researchers. And there are a few reasons for that. One uh, was the particular methods of propaganda and psychological warfare the um, IAS was possibly involved with. And in that sense, I'm referring to its most probable links to MKUltra, a guy who was attending these military industrial conferences that I previously mentioned during the late 1950s was known as Colonel James Monroe. And this guy was the head of um, the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology, which uh, for those of you unaware, was the major funding source for MKUltra. And in a lot of ways, it was also a, a kind of Rockefeller cutout funding a lot of this stuff as well, which is interesting. So Monroe is attending a lot of these conferences and he gets to know uh, this guy, Frank Rockwell Barnett, who was a huge figure in the early days of the IS and in a lot of other organizations, as I'll get to in a second. And again, I haven't been able to find whether or not he was directly aiding Monroe was directly aiding Barnett with the type of psychological operations they were doing with the IAS. I was able to find out that Monroe or Barnett rather helped the Dutch intelligence services set up an organization that was very similar to the IAS that he had done at Monroe's urging and was named some variation on the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology. It had the whole human ecology thing in the title. So it seems really probable that what they were trying to do with this was kind of akin to Naomi Klein's concept of the shock doctrine, when mm. you're trying to apply the methods of MK Ultra, this sort of, you know, luring the, uh, an individual into a fugue state where they can be reprogrammed and applying it to the masses through psychological warfare and this, uh, you know, this type of thing that the IS specialized in. So this is one aspect of it that's really, really important that nobody's looked at. And there's been other, I think, um, kind of offshoots of that that are equally significant, probably at the forefront, bringing the whole concept of fourth generational warfare that you hear so much about. Uh, the general read on that is that it's only been around since the 1980s, but in point of fact, Barnett, when he was with the IAS in the early 60s, was promoting something called fourth dimensional warfare, which is pretty much exactly the same thing as fourth generational warfare. So this seems like a technique that was already being administered to activists throughout this organization as soon as the early 60s. And that's also significant in terms of another, um, another project that the IS was involved in, and that was uh, creating the Freedom Studies Center. Essentially, this was a propaganda school that was run out of uh, Boston, Virginia. And interestingly enough, it was actually very close to um, a house or some kind of property like that. 
uh, that was owned by the finders, uh, the infamous CIA, it's called. It was, I think, mm. in like maybe five miles of the um, the IS's propaganda college. Uh, but anyway, so they have this this essentially psychological warfare school that they set up. They have a lot of big poobahs, including people like Alan Dulles and what have you coming in there to be guest speakers and lecturers and that kind of thing. And it's, this school really uh, trained a whole generation of right-wing activists that would play an enormous role in the rise of the new right and the Reagan revolution later on after the school was shuttered around 74. No, let me ask you. So under, like, I realize this is probably a broad question, but like the American Security Council and IS were directly training right-wing cadre, basically. Yeah. Did you, yeah, like, like that is so remarkable. Did you see any sort of indication that they were doing ops or plans to affect the American left? None as well. Yes and no. I mean, one of the guys, I can't remember his name before, but who came out of the Freedom Study Center was actually one. Yeah, in fact, yeah, he was one of the guys in the Nixon. He worked in the Nixon administration, and he was one of the guys who initially conceived of what became uh, the plumbers units. And he was actually advocating ops against the left, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I didn't find a lot of really hard evidence of that but as we'll get to here with some of the other figures linked to it there's definitely a lot of circumstantial evidence that they were very much running ops on the left and especially the whistleblower aspect of it hmm. but there's one other thing i want to get into the is here that's really important that relates to that and that's also the funding network and this is where frank rockwell bartnett is hugely significant and nobody realizes this but he was effectively the guy who put together the donor network that joan mellon chronicles and dark money and this kind of thing okay so mm. when he started out he was uh i think the main guy who picked projects to fund for the smith richardson foundation which was one of the big groups and then from there, when he went to the IS, he started working with Richard Mellon Scafey, who also became involved with it and obviously subsequently became an enormous sponsor. Barnett later had links to the Coors family as well, which wasn't directly tied to the IS, but a lot of other related groups. And um, he also, I think, had some indirect connections to the Koch brothers as well, as long as some of the other big right wing sugar daddies like the Hearst family, for instance. So that's kind of the other interesting thing about Barnett and the IS in the early 60s is when you look at a lot of the people tied in with this, like Richard Mellon Scafey, who was financing a lot of this stuff going all the way back to the military industrial conferences in the late 50s through various agents, you can see the emergence of the so-called dark money network beginning to take shape at this particular time. Interesting. Interesting. And so this was all to carry out political warfare, basically. That is remarkable because like you read different things like, you know, I'm off the top of my head. I'm thinking like Rick Perlstein or something where he just talks about how like there was this, you know, shift, you know, obviously there was like more than one, but it was like the shift into Nixon era and then a greater shift into the Reagan era and how 
so many political machines were operating to make that happen and there was so much discipline but like that that is just remarkable well that kind of ties into you know maybe the next figure that we'll get into um but specifically with uh general edward lansdale and his whole approach to counterinsurgency i mean really when you get mm. back to uh, his campaign in the Philippines in the late 40s into the uh, early 50s, which led to, I think it's May Say Sig, uh, becoming the president. A big part of his success hedged on uh, what were known as civic affairs units, right? And these were, for all sakes and purposes, political cadres that were modeled upon um, what the Soviets and especially the Chinese communists were doing. Uh, that's another thing about Lansdale I should emphasize. He was actually one of the first Americans to really study uh, some of Mao's treaties on uh, guerrilla warfare and that kind of thing. And he actually did adopt quite a few of the methods. But anyway, so... He's waging this counterinsurgency in the Philippines, and uh, his sort of main way of doing that was twofold. He developed these really elite mobile units that we would now think of as uh, special operations forces that could work as kind of hunter-killer teams against the hook on the one hand. And then on the other hand, he had um, the military develop all of these uh, civic affairs groups, which are, you know, again, these political cadres that he's sending into the villages to administer psychological warfare and indoctrination into uh, the individuals that they find there. And Lansdale was advocating for the same type of thing in the U.S. military and in a lot of corporate America and so forth. And I very much, because again, Lansdale was involved with the Freedom Study Center. In fact, he was, in some accounts, the primary visionary behind it. I very much believe that a purpose of creating this in the first place was to raise political cadres like what Lansdale had used in the Philippines and in other destinations that he went overseas under the guise of uh, what we typically refer to as civic affairs or civic action. And of course, you know, you, you can't do that in the United States, in theory, because the military and all this stuff is supposed to be apolitical. So that's where you end up with the whole civic affairs stuff and why I think that ultimately a lot of this went into the private sector because there was a big scandal about the IAS in uh, the early 1960s. I mean, I think I got into that a bit with the Dr. Strangelove show, but uh, J. William Fulbright uh, issued the famous Fulbright Memorandum where he discussed how the military was being indoctrinated with some of the policy or the methods advocated by the AAS. And then also he brought up General Walker's use of mm. Berkshire literature, which again, that's never been directly linked to the IAS, but there's a lot of circumstantial links around it, certainly, especially with the National Association of Manufacturers, which was closely tied to both organizations. So there is this whole motion to create a program of indoctrination on the part of the military. It's exposed by Fulbright. And it seems like from there, all of this went into the private sector. And again, I don't know if this is what, you know, the original intention had been, but it does seem like as the years went on, it served as effectively the genesis of what became the new right and the Reagan revolution, which is why in that, you know, context, it shouldn't really surprise us when we see that so many of the major figures behind Reagan were... Know, former military and uh, intelligence officials 
Yeah. So I think my listeners probably are the type of people who know who Lansdale is, but that depth of knowledge, and I include myself, is not super great. Like maybe we've heard something about Lansdale and his psychological tricks with vampires, or like maybe you hear something about, you know, Japanese gold or something. And there's a lot of like unclear information about Lansdale. Uh, I did want to ask actually, by the way, Recluse, have you read or heard about the novel? I think it's called Tree of Smoke by Dennis Johnson. Uh, no, I have not. It uh, prominently features Edward Lansdale, I think, as almost a main character. But interesting stuff. Just something that uh, I would be curious to definitely hear your thoughts about. I know you're not a huge fiction guy, but for sure. because well, I actually do like fiction quite a bit. I just don't mm. ever have time to read it again. <laughs> that, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But... Okay, what can you tell us about Lansdale? And like, what does your book have to say, like, to maybe either dispel or elaborate on some of these different weird rumors about him? Well, I mean, he is just an endlessly fascinating figure. And when I started the book, I really didn't even plan on addressing Lansdale very much. Um, but as I just kept doing more and more research, he became more and more central to it. And Effectively, I would argue he's kind of the protagonist, if you will, of uh, the first book, because I really felt that ultimately to tell uh, the Cold War era history of psychological warfare, I much as much had to tell Lansdale's story because it is so integral to it. So, I mean, just from the psychological warfare aspect, it's endlessly fascinating with how he very much tried to weaponize uh, religion, myths, spirituality against many of uh, the groups that he waged his counterinsurgency campaigns against. And that is fairly well known. But as I looked deeper into Lansdale, I began to realize he was just really one of the most innovative uh, military thinkers of the entire Cold War era, especially with his whole concept of what we would now think of as low-intensity conflicts. Lansdale was a visionary who could see as far back as the late 40s, early 50s, that the great power struggle in the Cold War would primarily be fought through proxies in the developing world and these kind of uh, guerrilla warfare campaigns that um, the Chinese at the time were beginning to gain renown for. And this, you know, it really flew in the face of uh, conventional wisdom in the military. These are all World War II era generals, people like Curtis LeMay, who are, you know, planning for the big mono and mono with the Soviet Union, where we're going to let the nukes fly. And, you know, there's going to be the big ground war in Europe. And I mean, Lansdale, uh, you know, realized pretty much off the bat that this was absolutely psychotic, that we had to find a different way to carry out the great power struggle. And I think that this is one of the reasons why he started to gain so much juice within the national security establishment effectively during the 50s is because he did have a vision for how we could confront the Soviets essentially through a prolonged war of attrition that would be fought 
across the globe um, and really over many generations, which is also why political indoctrination was so important, important in his schemes. But he came up with a workable method that frankly wouldn't lead to the end of humanity. <laughs> so yeah. that at least. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and in doing this, he really laid the foundation for a lot of uh, the most notorious counterinsurgency campaigns that the country has ever waged or supported. Of course, you could look at Phoenix and Vietnam, which had mm -hmm. its genesis and some of the stuff Lansdale was doing in the 50s in Vietnam, but also things like Operation Condor, uh, elements of Gladio. I mean, all of this really had aspects from Lansdale's vision. Yeah. No, it it occurs to me that the like Kennedy's Alliance for Progress in Latin America would probably be taking cues from certain things that Lansdale was testing out, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. In fact, he was touring um Latin America quite a bit during um the Kennedy administration. He went to Brazil, a lot of um the other countries like Paraguay, I think, uh essentially building up military alliances and also starting the, you know, kind of what became the notorious officer training program with the School of Americas and all this other kind of stuff. So yeah, that was definitely very much a part of what he was up to. And this sort of brings me to the next point, to another aspect of Lansdale's career that almost nobody really talks about. But he was really uh, very much the visionary behind what became the modern Special Operations Command and the Story Joint Special Operations Command. Uh, when Lansdale really started to rise to power in the national security establishment in the 50s, uh, we had special operations forces at the time, but really just um, the Army's Green Berets, the Army Special Forces, and they really weren't used very much either. Uh, if you go back and look at this in the 1950s, I mean, they were almost more an outfit that existed on, well, I mean, they did certainly do some covert stuff, but I mean, by and large, it's just these kind of highly trained forces. They're just sitting around in the barracks, not doing very much, if you will. Uh, but getting into the late 50s, Lansdale was uh, sent into the Office of Special Operations in the Pentagon, and he immediately began to really shake things up. First, he pushed for the creation of uh, special operations forces across all of the services. Uh, this kind of laid the foundation for what became the Navy SEALs and the Navy, and then also um, the various special operators that the Air Force also possesses. So, and then he also came up with the notion that you had to have all of the services together, sort of working in conjunction with one another so that you could rely on the different strengths to do these operations with maximum efficiency. And this really, I think, was the major contributor to Lansdale's downfall during the Kennedy years, because in doing this, uh, he really pissed off both the military and the cia simultaneously <laughs> not two groups i would want to piss off at the same time yeah yeah because it's like for the military again you know they're still caught up in the whole uh you know the big nuclear confrontation with mm -hmm. the Soviets. so the notion of investing all these funds and resources into special operations forces was really uh it just wasn't something that much of the military hierarchy 
was going to get on board with. Uh, and then on the flip side of the coin, it wasn't something the CIA liked either, because inevitably it would cut into their ability to conduct covert operations, uh, even though the CIA had really shown its limitations in this regard. Uh, I mean, almost as soon as going back to Laos or something to that effect, because the CIA, it's for these kind of covert operations involving commanders and stuff, it's always essentially relied on mercenaries who were usually ex, um, you know, military guys here. Guys on temporary duty, right? Yeah, I mean, people have been sheep dipped like that. But so they, they don't have a lot of actual soldiers. And this is one of the problems that the CIA would have continuously if it was going in to carry out like a, a covert operation with a really specific purpose like it's going to assassinate somebody or it's going to blow up a bridge or sabotage a submarine or something it was great doing that but when it got into trying to carry out like a counterinsurgency across you know a country the size of vietnam or even laos it just it didn't have the resources for that so in a lot of ways, the military was almost inevitably going to have to step in because it had the manpower that the CIA lacked for this. And that was really um, what had become rather evident with Vietnam. Uh, from very early on, the army was tasked with taking over a lot of the special operations in the country because the CIA just did not have the manpower for that, era, that kind of a round of uh, operation there. So... Even though this was sort of blatantly obvious, it was a major point of contention with the CIA. And for the military's part, too, they really didn't want to take up the covert operations. They were kind of dragged, kicking and screaming into that because they, well, hey, I mean, the military had always been a bit skeptical of the value of covert operations, especially like state mm -hmm. groups and stuff. And then on the other hand, um, they worried about the legal liabilities. Uh, and that was one of the things that Kennedy had done uh, that I think was a lot more significant than people realize is he had really set the foundation for the military to really usurp the CIA's ability, authority over covert operations as the years went on. And that really came to a head um, during yeah. the Bush II era. So, but again, this is something that Lansdale uh, was really very much the architect of. And then the other thing with Lansdale that, again, I and I had absolutely no idea of this. It was just really shocking to me when I started to find out about this. But it was his links to ARPA and the development of the Internet and specifically the use of computers uh, for counterinsurgency. But as I looked into this more, I learned about the strategic Hamlet program that he had initiated in Vietnam and had been carried mm. on by many supporters. And essentially, you had these model villages that were developed, and then you would conduct all of these censuses and so forth on the villagers, which would uh, be sent to a data center in Vietnam, would be uh, run through computers as an attempt to effectively project trends and things like that, even possibly determine who might become a insurgent, who wouldn't be, all this other kind of stuff. But at the time, ARPA effectively had a whole office developing different technologies for counterinsurgency, but the ARPANET was part of that. And it was being run by a guy known as William Goodell, and Goodell did not report to anybody in ARPA. His boss was Edward Lansdale. So essentially, Lansdale, when he became the head of the Office of Special Operations under Kennedy, 
is directing this entire counterinsurgency effort through ARPA, through Goodell, that is developing techniques of data mining and predictive modeling using computers. And this very much laid the foundation for a lot of like the Cambridge Analytica stuff that came later, or what's being done with the Google search engines and so forth. Mm. So this is another thing about Lansdale. It's been totally missed as he, and really this was the case going all the way back to his uh, campaigns in the Philippines where he had put a big ens- uh, emphasis on census uh, censuses and data mining and so forth, and then using technology for this. But he was very much a visionary in seeing how important technology would become in the future for waging a successful counterinsurgency campaign. I got to say every single thing, because I recently did a fairly large project studying Guatemala, particularly their civil war up to and including the genocide in the 80s and beyond, like into the 90s when it you know ended. And like so much of what you're saying is so related like for sure like kennedy's alliance for progress basically like funded this exact type of like lansdale approach where it was like you know the carrot and the stick there were all these civic action programs and attempts to like bring the population into like political education and you know having there there was like a strategic hamlet element to it and then like on the flip side, there's still the uh, stick, like a bunch of green berets running around killing people. Like, it's, and it, it's like that is basically the approach you have to have for like a situation like Guatemala. If you were say like a person who is invested in the American project, but like, y- like you can't just think in conventional warfare terms and you can't really just have the cia spying like but like there has to be that middle approach and that's exactly what you're describing that's that's very interesting yeah i mean well this is again why the philippines is so significant on so Mm. many levels and it's so overlooked i mean even you know before the second world war the uh, our involvement in the philippines i mean really set the, the template for how the american empire would be launched if we're being perfectly honest so i mean the whole history of the country as it relates to the united states is highly significant but in terms of lansdale's counterinsurgency campaign i mean yeah that was just absolutely the model for almost everything else that came uh, in the Cold War afterwards. And I mean, really up mm-hmm. to this day, I mean, the whole use of political cadres for the, you know, the kind of hearts and minds that you're referring to, I think, effectively, which is your carrot. And then you have uh, these elite commando units, on the other hand, that are going around, you know, assassinating people, trying to make them think that, uh, or make the villagers think vampires are doing it or something that is um, the proverbial stick <laughs> or maybe fang in this case. Yeah. And then I might cut this, right? But uh for uh, not that you care, but like but like Werbel also very much I mean not operating at the level of Lansdale, but like carving a niche for himself and his business interests in this like unconventional warfare space where it's like small caliber arms, weird exotic weaponry, like guns that are only useful for killing people in their sleep type of thing like very 
very interesting to see a sort of like shadow world, I guess. And also like Lansdale, but seemingly both the CIA and the, uh, the conventional armed forces didn't really like him. Yeah. I mean, there was just, um, I think there was a lot of envy about these guys, certainly, because I mean, they did have this, uh, I just think there was sort of that, I don't know, libertine, almost recklessness to them. I mean, they were very much cowboys, if you will. But I mean, yeah, I mean, Warbell wasn't mm -hmm. necessarily directly connected to Lansdale, but they did have that uh, connection between, what's his name, uh, Lucian Cohen, Black Ludy, you know, so... Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, this was kind of the whole uh, network that they were a part of with that. And certainly these guys always were looking for really unconventional approaches to how they would wage counterinsurgency, which did um, really infuriate the more formal structures within the Pentagon and the CIA in a lot of cases. But also, too, I mean, a lot of these guys, I do think there was an era of opportunism with it, maybe not so much with Lansdale, but uh, definitely some of the other ones, possibly Corbell, for instance. Extremely opportunistic, for sure.
Recluse, what kind of uh, operations did Lansdale seem to run against the left? Well, I think a lot of this really went through Hollywood, and it went back to uh, when the film adaptation of The Good Shepherd was being made. Of course, uh, this oh. was based on, or, um, yeah, yeah, it was, no, it wasn't The Good Shepherd, excuse me, The Quiet American. Oh, okay. there. <laughs> it was like pretty late then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Freudian slip there. My part, no, The Quiet American, the Graham Greene novel. So, um, Graham Greene, of course, this was a rather anti-American novel. There's been um, a lot of speculation as to whether or not the main character, at least the American, uh, the principal American character, and it was based on Edward Lansdale during his time in Vietnam. It most likely was not. Uh, in fact, it almost surely was not because there's really no evidence that Greene met Lansdale um, until after he had written the novel. But anyway, it had long been connected to Lansdale. And when the film adaptation came up, uh, Lansdale put a lot of pressure on the director, Joseph Minkowitz, uh, who is part of the Minkowitz family. I think, gosh, was it David Finchner who just made a movie about him or something? But there. Oh, yeah. And that guy was like a. Wasn't he like a rapist or something? Like, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. But this is a yeah, real yeah. story. There were other Minkowitzes involved in the. The film industry. I mean, I think his brother Charles Minkowitz, if I'm not mistaken, is who co-wrote Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. Joseph Minkowitz did a lot of. I think he did All About Eve and some other, like big movies besides The Quiet American. And the family is still uh, really active to this day. Uh, one of the family members was actually a press secretary for Robert Kennedy uh, in '68 during his campaign mm. when he was assassinated. So. Uh, this is a really, really important Hollywood family and also one that was really closely tied and frankly is still closely tied to the Democrats to this day. So Lansdale kind of latched himself to this production, uh, got them to reimagine the American character very much in a romanticized version of Edward Lansdale and made the movie a very much pro-American endorsement of uh, intervention in Vietnam. And Lansdale had grown up in L.A. He had worked as an ad man uh, before he went into the Army and the OSS during the Second World War. So he was already well aware of the power of film in that regard. But it seems like in at least by the late 1950s, he started to set his sights on this more so. But I think a lot of this uh, really came to a head after uh, he was effectively drummed out of the national security state after his second tour in Vietnam. And it's at this point in time, uh, he starts <laughs> making some really interesting alliances, telling some interesting tales out of school and so forth. So, there's a lot of different ways that he operated through this. But I mean, you have on the one hand, um, the storied book, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia by uh, Alfred McCoy. It's a great book. Uh, but if you go back and read the early parts of it, McCoy tells a really interesting story about how he found out about the CIA trafficking drugs in Laos. First, he had talked to former members of uh, the French intelligence services and special operations community who acknowledged they had been involved in trafficking drugs and essentially told him that the Americans had taken it over. So he's looking for information on this. And when he's in Washington, D.C., he hooks up with Edward Lansdale. 
and Edward Lansdale sits down with him along with Black Luigi and another guy, Bernard uh, Benny uh, Yaw, I think his name was, Y-O-H. Uh, there was an interesting connections with him too. But anyway, they start telling McCoy all about the CIA drug trafficking in Laos. They even tell him where to go to to look for it. He goes, wait, 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 wait. Conan was there as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Tell McCoy where to go to to look for this stuff. Goes out there. That's what inspires the politics of heroin in Southeast Asia. So this all, and this is the first really scholarly work that compellingly argued the CIA was involved in drug trafficking. Wait, wait, wait. So do you think that like Colby talking to Douglas Valentine was like them being like, oh, fuck, we got to get our version out there or something? It's something like that because Colby's another guy that's really close to Lansdale. So, mm. the, you know, I mean, this is like another thing. These guys have really been shaping this narrative. So then on the flip side of the coin, you've got Lewis Fletcher Prouty, who actually served under Lansdale when he was in the Office of Special Operations in the Pentagon. And he mm. um, releases the secret team in the early 1970s. And this you know, again, is another big CIA expose. And for years, uh, he would slander Lansdale. He would try eventually to imply that Lansdale had directed the Kennedy assassination. He waited, I think, to the late 1980s to make that claim. Um, after he had seen a picture, I think, of the guy with the umbrellas profile and determined then that it was Edward Lansdale. But uh, great, great evidence. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I definitely think that Prouty was being encouraged in this by um, Lansdale, because, again, he always seemed very bemused with Prouty when addressing him and uh, when he was discussing him with the letters with his colleagues and so forth. And uh, so it's like freaking kayfabe then. Yeah, essentially. And I mean, you know, just again with Lansdale's sensibility, because if you read his book in the midst of war, when he's talking about psychological warfare, he continuously emphasizes the value of low humor, right? So I think Lansdale almost taking on this, you know, James Bondian villa villain personification and conspiracy communities would be in keeping with that low humor. I actually think that this is something that he would have encouraged, you know, originally he had sort of set himself up as this American icon. And then once his legacy had been irreparably damaged in that regard, I think he kind of took the opposite approach and was like, well, I'm going to be the villain now. Uh, you know, what's bizarre is like, I really do feel like at times Werbel was playing a character too. Oh yeah. No, it wouldn't surprise me. And you know, this is where two admin. Yeah. You know, it's like a guy like Michael Aquino. It's the same thing coming out of Army Psychological. Yes. yes. I mean, he's another guy. He's playing a character in a lot of this. These guys definitely looked at it like that. So these are some of the things that Lansdale's going. But the real big thing that he did to the left, I suspect, was Daniel Ellsberg. Mm. Ellsberg served under Lansdale in Vietnam. And Ellsberg loved Edward Lansdale. He specifically told Max Boot that as recently as 2018, when he was doing when Boot was doing his biography on Lansdale, Ellsberg described himself as being a part of the cult of Edward Lansdale. And this is where this stuff gets really, really interesting because Ellsberg remakes himself as a whistleblower around the late 60s when that's when he first starts to make overtures to the peace community around the mm. time Lansdale was drummed out of the National Security Services. 
Now, as far as the Pentagon Papers are concerned, uh, I found some really interesting indications that there had been a plan to leak them as far back as 1968 to assist Robert Kennedy's bid for the presidency. Mm. In fact, when they originally came out, Nixon thought that it was a conspiracy launched by um, Kennedy supporters against him, which in my opinion is probably a lot closer to the mark than a lot of people <laughs> realize. Uh, because yeah, because, you know, absolutely. You know, I mean, the pen, um, the Pentagon Papers were entirely compiled by Kennedy people within uh, the government after JFK's assassination. And yeah, I mean, several of the people behind it were very closely tied. And of course, RFK or excuse me, Ellsberg had made overtures to RFK and so forth. So I think that when the leak did occur, this may well have been driven um, by Pete, by Lansdale and possibly some of his other supporters in a bid to go after Nixon. And specifically, I think that this was in reaction to Nixon's decision to normalize relations with China and effectively to abandon Vietnam. Because even though Lansdale was very much a quote unquote Cold War liberal, if you will, uh, had never really identified with the right until the 1980s or so. Uh, he had spent, you know, a good chunk of his life at this point by the early 70s, I mean, 20-something years largely operating in Asia. He was, by all accounts, very fond of the culture over there. Of course, he later ended up um, marrying a, a Filipino woman as his second wife, uh, you know, this was very personal for him. He had a lot of good friends in Vietnam and the Philippines and so forth. So he and a lot of the officers were just outraged by Nixon's essential, by his decision essentially to abandon Southeast Asia at this point and the policies being driven by Henry Kissinger, which oddly um, put them in alignment really with the the far right and the military, ironically. So this was, in my mind, a big part of the operation being run there. But with Ellsberg, you know, this also gets him um, the ability to really insert himself into all of these different counterculture circles. And he had already made some inroads about this through, uh, with this years before. I mean, one of the things I found out is Ellsberg had actually been toying around with LSD since the early 60s. Um, that's why it's the whole thing with the plumbers talking about trying to dose Ellsberg with LSD is so freaking ridiculous. It's like this guy had tripped for like well over a decade by this point in time. It's like, mm -hmm. let's say we're going to give him a massive dose or something. I don't think it would have affected him nearly as much as a lot of people in that era would have. Um, but anyway, so Ellsberg, his big score is he hooks up with this producer, Bert Snyder. Bert Snyder is huge in the development of film after the late 1960s because he was the guy who produced Easy Rider, which really revolutionized Hollywood on a variety of levels, partly because it was this low budget movie that became a phenomenal success. I mean, I think it, you know, it was made for like $400,000 in its first run. It had made 70 million or something. I think, you know, now even adjusted for inflation, it's still one of the most lucrative movies ever made uh he had shown how you could essentially take a jern picture in this point with the biker movie 
elevated into a quote-unquote art form and he had also brought in a lot of counterculture aesthetics into it uh, he had used the lax censorship standards to bring in a lot of drugs and nudity into the film and also certain influences from europe in terms of the you know the french new wave from italy with fellini and stuff like that so uh, the production company that he established, BBS, along with Bob Raffleson and I think Steve Blom was the other one, was really at the forefront of interjecting, quote unquote, counterculture ethos into Hollywood at this particular point in time. So you got Easy Rider and then from there you get Five Easy Pieces. And these are the two movies that really established Jack Nicholson as the big leading man for the 1970s you get stuff like the last picture show uh, a few other films like the king of marvin gardens and all this other good stuff and this is just really the model for instance that robert evans uh used when he took over at paramount i mean really i think that they were trying to set evans up as a more kind of mainstream Hollywood version of what uh, Bert Snyder was doing with BBS at the time. And he had an incredible scene going on at his office spaces. You know, you had Bert there with Jack Nicholson, with people like William Burroughs, with people like Thomas Pynchon. I mean, this was a major mecca for all of these counterculture types in the early 1970s. And then around this time frame, Bert becomes really infatuated with Ellsberg and he decides to make a documentary uh, originally that was supposed to be about Ellsberg called Hearts and Minds, which uh, he does goes on he does go on and makes and it becomes essentially a major anti-war and a Vietnam statement. It wins mm -hmm. an Oscar in 74, 75 or something and Bert... Um, famously pissed off old guard Hollywood by I believe getting up on the stage and reading a telegram I think from the um the North Vietnamese embassy thanking him in Hollywood for all their assistance in liberating the country or something I I think like there was like a fist fight that broke out with John Wayne or something like that in the audience <laughs> it was say what you want about Bert Snyder but he had some balls I will give him that but um so Bert was the personification, okay, of the counterculture at this time. And he becomes a major backer for Daniel Ellsberg. He's routinely meeting with Ellsberg during this time. And Ellsberg's wife, uh, Patricia Ellsberg, previously Patricia Marks, Barbara Marks Hubbard's uh, sister, which is another interesting thing. That's mm. the famous new, way, new age guru there. That's another kind of interesting inroad that Lansdale potentially had with his former asset, quote unquote, Ellsberg here. But there's more. So Bert, he's not just this big counterculture filmmaker. He's not just interested in uh, doing Ellsberg during a documentary. He's interested in the full-blown militant struggle, right? So he starts to become a major financial patron of a lot of other groups in this time, one of them are the Yippies. It's mm. very close to Abby Hoffman, to Jerry Rubin, to all these other people connected with it, which is going to be really significant when I get into the second book on uh, the art. But perhaps more importantly, he is really, really infatuated with the Black Panthers. He becomes the major financial supporter of the Panthers 
Uh, he becomes a really good friend of Huey Newton. And in fact, there's even credible evidence indicating that Bert was Huey Newton's lover as well. So oh. he's tied in with all of that. And he's also a big figure in the early Esalen scene and a lot of the new age stuff and what have you. And Ellsberg is intersecting in all of this with him. So if you subscribe to theories about the left being co-opted by counterinsurgency efforts, well, you have essentially the father of counterinsurgency with his boy Ellsberg, who makes a beeline into the new left after Lansdale gets booted out of the American security establishment, hooks up with this superstar producer who has ties to basically all the major radical groups and all of the big leftist circles in Hollywood. And then wouldn't you know those groups immediately eat shit? <laughs> immediately. <laughs> Burr was still a big part of this whole milieu going into the 1980s. Um, by this point in time, Michael Douglas was kind of the big figure. But by this time, like in the left in Hollywood, um, uh, what was it? The Sandinistas were like the big cause for celebration, right? So they're doing all this you know, stuff to try to raise funding for the Sandinistas and all this other good stuff during the 1980s. And again, this has got... All of these leftist Hollywood circles, I mean, people like Oliver Stone, for instance, were a big part of all of this. And again, Ellsberg is still very closely tied to uh, Snyder and all these efforts. In fact, Ellsberg, I think, would remain one of uh, Snyder's pretty much only um, backers. I think he was even a financial supporter up until the time of his death in the late 1980s. Um, Burt definitely fell in some hard times around the early 90s. He had a pretty sizable cocaine habit by that point in time and so forth. But uh, all the way up through the 1980s, he was kind of the godfather of these leftist quote-unquote anti-war circles within Hollywood and he was also really close to a lot of the LSD crowd through his uh, relationship with uh, Oscar Janiker too. Janiker was um, the LA you know LSD doctor that was giving prescriptions to guys like Cary Grant and what have you in the 1950s. He and uh, Bert actually had this retreat uh, in somewhere in Mexico. I can't remember where, but they would throw these crazy parties with acid down there. And as I've been told, it was a really big thing in Hollywood to be invited to one of those, like in the 80s, right? So so you could go trip with these old men in their 70s and 80s <laughs> at that point in time. You know, all these godfathers of the LSD scene do God knows what in this isolated Mexican retreat. <laughs> So yeah, this is this is the whole scene that uh, Daniel Ellsberg ingrained himself with after um, his mentor was uh, booted out of the national security state. So yeah, it, it does make you wonder about what exactly was going on with all of this. See, this is like such fascinating stuff because, like, you know, me subliminal jihad kind of taking the mantle from dave mcgowan to like explore the infiltration co-option of like the new left like this is a whole new vector that has been not fully examined or talked about or like understood is like this route that's fascinating yeah well snyder is just so huge to all of this which you know even i didn't really realize until one of my listeners had started to clue me in on it but 
you know, just to give you some more backdrop, he really had made a name for himself uh, producing the TV series based on the monkeys. So even before he did Easy Rider, he already mm. had a lot of pop culture, you know, cash with um, doing the monkeys series because they were really, I mean, almost as big as the Beatles in the States at one point. I mean, it's been kind of whitewashed now, but they really were instrumental in the really the 60s psychedelic counterculture towards the end. I mean, if you don't believe that just go watch head that was another movie that uh Bert snyder did uh the jack nicholson wrote and bob raffleson directed <laughs> uh definitely one of my favorite acid movies but that's neither here nor there <laughs> um but see bird was another guy whose family was hollywood gentry his dad abe snyder uh actually became the head of cbs pictures effectively during the mid uh 60s and it's really interesting, too, because he was one of the guys in control of CBS or excuse me, Columbia. CBS was the TV um, branch, Columbia Pictures, uh, when Dr. Strangelove was being made. And Columbia hated Dr. Strangelove with a passion. There's a lot of, you know, because there was a lot of uh, debate over whether they should back that one or fail safe. And they ended up going with Stanley Kubrick's film. But it's always been a bit of a mystery as to how all that stuff played out. But Abe Snyder was one of the guys who signed off on um, the early release for Strange Love over Failsafe. And another guy who pushed for it as well was Mo Rothman, who would later become another big um, figure close to Burt Snyder as well. And Rothman, again, another interesting character, another guy who... Uh, actually had long-term ties to Charlie Chaplin, who was another guy Bert Snyder admired a lot. In fact, Snyder was uh, one of the guys who had really uh, laid the foundation for Chaplin to uh, return to the United States in the early 60s or 70s and get that like Lifetime Achievement Oscar or something like that. And again, this is really interesting. If you listen to my Albacore series, uh, Charlie Chaplin was a member of the mm -hmm. Club of Avalon. This is, you know, the sort of secret society that the uh, the Albacore Club in Chinatown was modeled upon. It was this really elusive, secretive organization that had a lot of major Hollywood types in it. And um, Chaplin was another guy where he had four wives, I think only one of them was of legal age the first time that he had sex with her. Um, Charlie Chaplin had a thing for underage girls, to put it mildly. That That's a big part of why he had spent a lot of his latter years in, in France. And mm. Burr was a big guy in bringing this one this guy back to the United States to get a lifetime achievement award. Okay. Oh, great. <laughs> okay. So Bert also had some interesting brothers. One of them was Stanley Snyder, I think, who was set up as an independent producer. Um, gosh, I can't remember the studio, but it was similar to the deal that Robert Evans had. And the first movie that he produced as part of this deal was Three Days at the Condor. And he died mm. of a heart attack in the middle of the production suddenly. He was only like 51 years old or something, too. So that's interesting. Mm. And then he had another brother, brother Herbert Snyder, who um, he was like an editor. And he had a lot, did a lot of work over the years uh, with Robert Evans. In fact, I think he was a big editor like on uh, The Two Jakes, which was the sequel to Chinatown. But there was a lot of overlap with that whole scene as well with Robert Evans kind of going into the 1980s with the Cotton Club. In fact, actually, at one point, um, 
Bert Snyder was going to be the producer, the two Jakes instead of Evans because the Cotton Club scandal. And then at the last minute, Nicholson pulled rank and insisted that they bring Evans back. Uh, but again, this is another thing that the Snyder family was kind of tied in on. Um, you know, I think they've largely died out, but they were a big family in all of these Hollywood circles for years, not unlike the Minglewinces, who they were also um, close to. And, you know, again, if you guys listening to this, maybe want to get a bit of a sense of um, just how flamboyant Bert Snyder was, I would suggest going back and uh, watching a uh, a great Steven Soderbergh film called The Limey uh, from, the I think, the late 90s, starring mm. Terrence Stamp. Uh, there's a character in it, a, uh, a producer played by Peter Fonda that uh, was supposedly modeled on Bert Snyder. And uh, Peter Fonda would certainly know as he was the the star of Easy Rider, which is the movie Bert made his name on. So. so as anyone who knows your work knows, you've been very interested in the sovereign order of St. John. Now, although I worry as to what the answer is going to be who is the sovereign order of saint john and how do they relate to the work uh how do they relate to the network around lansdale this wasn't even a group that i had really planned at all on addressing uh when i did this but i kind of uh, inadvertently had to get into it because of some of the connections a few of these individuals had um, but the Sovereign Order of St. John is an endlessly mysterious organization. It um, emerged at some point in the mid-1950s. I think it's generally believed to be about 56 or 57 uh, when it incorporated around Shikshini, Pennsylvania, right? This led to it sometimes being despairingly known to known as the Shikshini Knights of Malta. So... As the nickname implies, um, this group claimed lineage to the historic Knights of Malta, alias the Knights Hospitaller, um, the Great Crusader Order, uh, founded in the, the 12th century, I believe. But with a twist, they were from the Russian line of succession. This goes back to when uh, the Knights of Malta lost on Malta following, uh, I think it was Napoleon's invasion in the early 19th century. And briefly, they had found protection uh, from the Tsar Peter in Russia, and they had set up shop in St. Petersburg. But after Peter died, um, they were basically evicted and had ended up at their current headquarters in Rome. So that's the official story. Uh, the Sovereign Order of St. John claimed that, in fact, the Russian... Uh, line had continued unabated but covertly in Russia and then at some point in the 19th century they had begun to relocate to the United States and stealth and it wasn't in the 1950s for whatever reason they had finally decided to emerge from the shadows um, you know again I had long dismissed this history of the group but there is just there's a lot of weird stuff about its early days to put it mildly uh prior to the official foundation but i don't want to get us too sidetracked going into that um so what we can say for sure about the group that did emerge uh in the late 1950s is that by that point in time it featured a striking amount of former military officers involved with it and in many cases you know these weren't just 
you know, like a lieutenant or, a, you know, um, a captain or something like that. I mean, when you look at the military commission uh, board, it's general this, admiral that, colonel so-and-so. I mean, these were all really very senior military officers. Um, one was, uh, for instance, General Charles Willoughby, who was uh, Dennis MacArthur's spy master during both uh, the Pacific Theater of the Second World War and uh, MacArthur's tenure running um, the war in Korea. And again, for people unaware of this, MacArthur totally kept the OSS out of the Pacific Theater in World War II and largely kept the CIA out of Korea in the early years as well, and especially Japan. So Willoughby was arguably the most powerful spy uh, during this tenure from roughly about um, 43 or something like that to 51, 52 in the whole uh, Pacific region of the world. So, I mean, he was a very significant figure. Another guy was uh, Bonner Fellers, General Bonner Fellers, who had been uh, MacArthur's big psychological warfare officer in the Pacific during World War II. So there were just so many of uh, these colorful characters tied up with this group, to put it mildly. And this has led to a lot of speculation over the years that um, this group was a little more than just a group of eccentrics uh, who wanted to dress up in capes and pretend that they were the scions of European nobility. And uh, the great Kevin Coogan, uh, first a dreamer of the day, and then later for his uh, most recent book, um, The Man was it the spy who would be czar, I believe, about uh, Mikhail Golanansky, who was um, also a member of this glorious order. He had researched, Coogan, that is to say, had researched the group for many years, and he had come to the conclusion that this group was effectively an organization that was used by the U.S. military to stash a lot of, quote-unquote, stay-behind forces in originally that had been uh, that it, that they had uh, planned on using uh, for Operation Bloodstone. That was sort of an offensive version of Claudio. It was a program that the military and the CIA had run in the late 40s, early 50s, where we were sending these commando teams into Eastern Europe, and they were going to start a guerrilla war and, you know, slowly topple the Soviet Union through that, uh, you know, means. Uh, this was sort of also the basis of Gladio, though in this case you would use these sort of guerrillas to uh, harass communist forces instead of trying to wage an insurgency in occupied territory, right? But anyway, a lot of this stuff had petered out, and you know we needed somewhere to stash a lot of these these quote unquote invaluable and priceless assets, and you know we also. Frankly, we needed our own stay behind in the United States for various reasons, so it all seemed to work out, right? Um, and this is something that I had been, that I had come to the conclusion for uh, years earlier myself in researching a lot of uh, the kind of broader Christian identity network, because this was so extensively implicated in right-wing domestic terrorism here. Um, this great book by Stuart Wexler. I think it's like the American Jihadists or something like that, or America's Secret Jihad that gets into uh, the whole identity network and just the litany of terrorism that they've been involved in, from the bombing of black churches to you know assassinations, all kinds of things. 
and a big figure um, in this network was a guy called Colonel uh, William Potter Gale, who had also been a MacArthur man during the Second World War. And in a book called The Committee of the States by uh, Cherry Seymour, who um, later went on to write an excellent book on the octopus. I Gosh, I can't remember the name of it now. I think it's like the last something. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I know that, yeah. She took up the torch from Danny Casolaro. But anyway, this was the book that she wrote before then. And she had asked Gail uh, where the ideal for identity and, you know, the sort of broader and sovereign citizen movement that was a part of it had come from. And he told her specifically that he had been instructed to start pushing this message by three military officers, two of which General Pedro Del Valle and uh, one Colonel uh, Benjamin Von Stahl were both members of the Sovereign Order of St. John, and Von Stahl would continue to be uh, a big figure in these uh, this milieu for years to come, in fact, because there were the, quite a few orders of St. John. It was an organization where continuously it was theoretically breaking up and having these all shoots spawned with it. And Von Stahl's uh, version of it was essentially the one that was implicated in the PACCON investigation all those years later mm -hmm. um with grady you know that uh that minister or whatever from tennessee who was like running that branch of it right so uh, this was a really serious network in terms of the links that the order of saint john had to domestic terrorism and as i had started researching this over the years i mean i had really uh, made some pretty startling uh, discoveries especially when it came to uh general pedro del valle and one thing I had found in uh, his correspondences that my research partner, Keith Allen Dennis, had collected were a series of letters between him and future General Richard Steelwell, who's another just endlessly fascinating figure. And these are from the early 50s before the Order of St. John and uh, before Del Valley was involved with it, certainly. But at this point in time, uh, Stilwell was with the CIA and he was um, deeply involved in the Bloodstone stuff, along with his partner, Frank Lindsay, in the CIA. And then later, a lot of the covert operations uh, in the Pacific. So this guy really big historically in a lot of these stay behind stuff. And he and Del Valley were close. I mean, I saw a letter where um, I think Del Valley was thanking Stillwell for a wonderful time when their family spent Christmas together uh, a couple of months previous or something like that and how great their wives got along and you know, all this kind of stuff. And in between that, um, he's talking about how he's in contact with these white Russian forces and these French fascist groups. And, you know, they've got all these paramilitary ready, paramilitaries ready, you know, as soon as the the time has come to start uh, triggering all the uprisings in the Soviet Union, you know, they're they're jumping at the bit, you know, he just needs Steelwell's authorization and start getting them ready for battle, so to speak. So this is a guy, you know, he, he's talking to people directly about that who ends up in the Order of St. John. He's not the only one. Another guy in there is Colonel Philip Corso, who's typically known for his absurd connections to Roswell to the day after Roswell and all this other stuff. But, um, you know, before he got into all this woo-woo stuff, he was, uh, he was a colonel in the American Army and military intelligence who was on the National Security Council and he was also working on setting up stay-behinds in Europe for what we would think of as Claudio. Another guy with a lot of this expertise that ends up in uh, the Order of St. John, right? So, Stillwell, 
to return to this boy was another one of the visionaries behind the order of saint or excuse me not the order of saint freudian slip um the Joint Special Operations Command, he and Lansdale had known each other uh, for quite a few years through various national security circles. In fact, I think Stilwell, if I'm not mistaken, was Lansdale's direct superior at one point uh, when he was running his operations in the Philippines. And they would continue to interact for years afterwards. They had a lot, you know, kind of the whole network of officers they were a part of. There was a lot of overlap uh, but again, Stilwell was another guy who was really closely connected to this group who was involved with these kinds of operations. And when you get into uh, the 1980s, Lansdale was directly involved with the group with, what was the name, Andrew Messing, the National Defense Council, I think, or something like that. Oh, gosh. But this is another one of these sort of Reagan-era groups that was you know, nominally started as like a lobby group, but I mean, it had people like Robert K. Brown, the founder of Soldier of Fortune magazine involved with it. And um, mm. another guy who, if, I can't remember his name now, but a financier who became involved with the Order of St. John. But again, there was more overlap between this group, uh, some of the other more militant ones, and also some of the stuff that was happening with the civilian material assistance and the Order of St. John and all this other stuff. So again, it's like Lansdale was a guy who was deeply involved in setting up these paramilitaries for counterinsurgency operations. And it really does very much seem that he had become a part of this support network in the 1980s in terms of uh, both funding and uh, coming up with troops to assist the Reagan administration in all of these guerrilla wars they were being waged across the world at this time. And probably a big figure in this was another general, General Edwin Black, another close associate of Lansdale, um, again, close to Sealwell, was involved in, uh, you know, Vietnam, you know, in uh, Thailand, just all kinds of other stuff like that. Uh, after he officially retires from the Pentagon in the early 70s, he goes a couple of years and he ends up... Uh, becoming, I believe, the um, the Hawaiian representative for Nugent Hand. Uh, he actually asked for Lansdale's advice before he um, took on the job there. He wrote him a letter talking about how he had met this this wonderful Green Beret, Michael Hand. He was wondering if uh, Lansdale uh, knew him <laughs> and if he could give him a recommendation on the guy, right? Uh, so anyway, he's involved with this whole thing with Nugent Hand, which for those of you unfamiliar was just major and funneling all of this black money for these covert operations. Again, you know, Han was also working to try to secure American mercenaries, I think also with Robert K. Brown to fight in uh, Rhodesia initially and then later South Africa, right? And then after Nugent Han winds down, Black ends up working for another bank. I can't remember the name of it, but it was based in Hawaii. And this one collapsed in 1983, and it was also revealed to be a CIA front. In fact, I think that the court documents for this one were actually um, under the security of national, um, or they were basically had national security applied to them because of the information they had in them about the CIA. But again, it's interesting because Lansdale was actually in Hawaii in 1983 spending Christmas with Edwin Black. Why all this was unfolding, right? So... Black was just another guy, huge, and creating a financial network for a lot of these black operations, along with people like Colby, 
very close to Lansdale also involves setting up like a lot of this, you know, this kind of network of commandos that could be used for this stuff during the Reagan years. Mm-hmm. So I just, again, you know, to emphasize this, but Lansdale was just such a big guy in setting up this kind of black network with these, these political cadres on the one hand, these financial resources, these mercenaries, just so much stuff that become epidemic in the 21st century in a lot of ways. That is fascinating. Very interesting. So Lansdale specifically, maybe I missed because I kind of, I see how it all connects in a certain sense, like what you said, but what was Lansdale's connection to any sovereign order of St. John? Uh, was, Was there ever any direct connection with him? It wasn't really a direct connection so much as a sort of indirect connection to Mm. the network that he was doing with this, you know, a lot of these sort of covert military operations. But there was a lot of overlap between some of the people that he was tied to in the the National Defense Council, I think it was called. And later, a lot of the groups that were connected with the Order of St. John, especially through the civilian material assistance. Then how does all of this connect to Stanford? Well, Stanford was just really the epicenter for a lot of uh, the stuff that was being done with the ARPANET in terms of counterinsurgency uh, for so many years and developing the ARPANET and so forth. But I mean, Stanford, I think, uh, more specifically, was also very much tied in with uh, what we would kind of think of as psychotronic or non-lethal uh, weapons, which was something the more that I was researching this and getting into things like U.S. nuclear policy, um, it seemed like a very large amount of psychological operations that were being done around nuclear policy were also to cover up research that was being done on psychotronic weapons or non-lethal weapons or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I think a lot of the mm-hmm. UFO ethos uh, centers around this, along with a lot of the stuff that was related to, you know, remote viewing and things of that nature. And, you know, just to get into things like electromagnetic radiation or elf waves and stuff like that without getting uh, really woo woo on this as to whether or not it could be used for mind control purposes or uh, something to that effect at a more mundane level um there are well certainly i mean there was a very public acknowledgement of this that the navy had interest in this kind of research at a very superficial level as part of nuclear policy to be able to communicate with nuclear subs in the event that a uh, a full-blown nuclear exchange essentially broke out with the Soviet Union. We could use these extreme low frequencies to theoretically communicate with them covertly. But there might have even been an ulterior purpose of that. There are some indications that um, elf waves or something related to that, like ultrasonics, could be used theoretically to scramble the trajectory of nuclear warheads. So if that's possible, that would be huge in a nuclear exchange if you could divert Soviet nukes. So if you had that technology, you would you know, come up with almost any kind of cockamamie scheme 
that you could think of to cover it up and what you were trying to do with it. And that's where Stanford is so interesting in this regard, because when we've when people have typically looked at some of the crazy stuff that was going on there, it's always focused on uh, the related stuff going on at SRI uh, with the remote viewing and all this other stuff, or possibly some of the stuff related to the ARPANET or maybe some of the AI projects, all this other good stuff. But you have to step back and look at the broader history of Stanford, and specifically a guy called uh, Fred Terman, who is just an endlessly fascinating figure. So during World War II, he was involved with the Radio Research Laboratory, which was an offshoot of the Rad Lab, but it was actually a much more classified uh, version of the Rad Lab. And to this day, we don't really know a lot about what uh, the Radio Research Laboratory, the RL, was doing during World War II. Officially, it was supposed to be developing countermeasures for radar, you know, to scramble Nazi radar and this kind of stuff. Uh, but when I was at Stanford going through some of Fred Terman's um, papers, I turned up some interesting documents from the collection that they had from the RRL that had been declassified. And some of this effectively gets into creating what we would think of as laser beam weapons, essentially, and then other cases about uh, shooting beams up into the ionosphere uh, and then back down to Earth, which is essentially what harp technology is based on, right? <laughs> so this was all really quite striking to me to see that a lot of this stuff was being researched by the RRL all the way back in World War II. So the more I looked at Terman, I found out that he was really the man who created not just Stanford, but also Silicon Valley as we knew it. I mean, he was just so big on creating, as the provost of Stanford, the environment for um, all of the tech companies to be founded there. And a lot of them, like Hewitt Packard, were set up by uh, former students of his, actually. Um, but he had arranged through personal connections, a lot of financing and stuff like that for these companies. But it gets even more interesting because most of this funding, and this is what people don't realize, was coming from the military, especially the Navy. I mean, from the end of World War II up until the mm. early 60s, almost all of Stanford's federal funding was coming from the freaking Navy. And Terman was the front man for this, who was deciding where all this funding is going to, right? His big thing is radio waves and extreme low frequency radiation and all this other kind of stuff. So you start seeing him push for a lot of interesting stuff at Stanford, like a world-class microwave facility or like an early version of the, uh, was it the Lars Hydrogen Collider? They actually have um, a kind of proto version of that at Stanford that Terman had initiated the construction of. That actually, to this day, a lot of people don't even know about, right? So he was pushing for all the stuff to be done there in which it was being funded by the Navy. And again, as I had alluded to earlier, the Navy was the one, I mean, all the branches of the military were interested in this stuff, but the Navy was really at the forefront of this and a lot of this research. And that was something that the more I had looked at this, I had started to wonder 
if a big part of what Terman was doing at Stanford was trying to conduct this really elaborate program to research uh, psychotronic weapons or whatever you want to call it, essentially um, under extreme black cover, if you will. I mean, of course, you had some acknowledged secret projects, quote unquote, that are going on there, like the ARPANET. And then you also have this sort of weird woo-woo stuff at SRI unfolding in the backdrop of this. And then you have people like Jacques Belay that are interacting with both aspects of it. But also there was some sort of covert research being done with this in relation to non-lethal weapons. So it had occurred to me that part of this at least was some kind of psychological or propagandistic operation to try and cover up just the extent to which we were interested in this kind of stuff. And I mean, this gets just extremely uh, complicated when you get into some of the related fields. I mean, you have like the fundamental physics group, I think at the same time, those are the, the people who basically hippified mm -hmm. physics, you know, they're all based out of- Sarfati. Exactly, Sarfati, all these people at Stanford. These guys are really tied in with concepts like the noosphere, who's the big proponent of the noosphere in the new age, the person who gets cited when the Aquarian conspiracy comes out as this dominant figure throughout it. Barbara Marks Hubbard, Christian Mark Hubbard's sister, uh, Daniel Ellsberg's sister-in-law. <laughs> kind of sets a big foundation here for a lot of the hot tub diplomacy and all this other stuff. Barbara Marks Hubbard was even a part of John Alexander's task force Delta, right? In the army at the time. So the more I had looked at all this kind of stuff, it just occurred to me that there was almost this really elaborate, almost Lansdalian operation, I think, going on there to cover up what was really cutting edge defense research for weapons that probably would have been integral to continuity of government, to nuclear war. You see a lot of the accolades of Lansdale in the background, which to my mind had even uh, further increased the probability that there had just been this elaborate hall of mirrors that had been erected around Stanford and what was really going on there, what was really the purpose of this uh, this university, because this gets us into some just some really dark stuff, which I'm going to go down to in the later books. But I mean, on the one hand, you know, you have all of the the stuff that's being done there with computers, with the data mining, with the uh, predictive modeling, you know, you have stuff like the microwaves and all this other kind of research with lasers, which could be leading to psychotronics that in a minimum could affect human brain waves. And then finally, you also have world-class medical facility there that specializes in neuroscience. Okay very high in the field with that and then some of the stuff that they've specifically been looking at is again what are the effects when you alter somebody's eeg patterns can that be used to affect behavior and things like that so when you step back and look at all of that what could have possibly have been going on at stanford for years now it leads you with some very disturbing implications for the future. And I mean, certainly when you look at the genesis of the modern tech industry there and being driven by a guy like Fred Terman. Damn. <laughs> I mean, for sure, right? 
was like you said acquainted with a lot of the sri stuff but to know that it's like even more that it's like the scope and scale of it is just next level yeah i mean the sri stuff might have been like the clown version of this you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah. just like the the sideshow that the public was being shown i mean the real stuff that might have been going on with all of that i mean it's just it's terrifying i mean it really is so your next book you are going in that direction you said well actually it's kind of funny we've got to kind of step back before we go forward in a sense because the second book is going to be looking at the other side of this i would say not through the national security services but through how a lot of occult groups have been using psychological warfare and to unpack that i you know, obviously you could probably go back to practically the dawn of history, but for uh, modern contemporary history, I uh, had made the conclusion from pretty early on that I had to start with the Rosicrucians. Mm. And I think this is also highly important because the um, the manifestos were such a big deal um, right at the, uh, you know, the Westerfieldian peace, essentially the creation of the modern nation state, as we think of it, the rise of contemporary militaries and all this other good stuff. So you have to start out with the history of Rosicrucianism and then from there getting into the late 19th century and essentially getting into this almost occult form of psychological warfare and diverse groups of actors who have participated in it over the years, probably um, starting maybe with the White Chapel Club, going into uh, the Fortean Society, and then from there getting into the Discordians and the Yippies and all these other um fascinating groups in that regard and it gets into some really dark stuff um you know this was the book that i certainly uh have uh, planned on really getting into the satanic panic with which is another big aspect of this i mean the modern satanic panic really goes back uh, to the late 19th century in france and i mean again ironically it's tied up with a lot the of taxal hoax right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's tied up with all of the same kind of like rosicrucian organizations and stuff like that the successors of which you see turning up in the modern manifestations of this and i mean ironically it also gets into i think a lot of the stuff around serial killers and really this whole mythology around them uh so this was like something that i really started to pick up on when i had started to look at uh jack the ripper because i mean if you're looking at the stuff of jack the ripper and you're being really objective about it you have to acknowledge that jack the ripper is a character that was created by the london press you know we really don't know if the five kind of murders. like a zodiac situation exactly we don't know if the murders of the ripper were you know because again you could see how the five murders directly attributed to him might be related but there's definitely a lot of anomalies in each one it's possible maybe two or three other murders in Whitechapel in the surrounding area were possibly connected to him as well or maybe only two of the uh original five killings were done by the ripper maybe all of them were done by separate people we really don't know okay the whole Jack the Ripper thing was totally a construct done by the media. And there were probably geopolitical implications with this. Because, again, if you go back and look at some of the 
original stuff with the Ripper killings, there's a very strong whiff of anti-Semiticism to it. In fact, I think one of the bodies was found mm-hmm. right next to like the Jewish Socialist League. Earlier, the media had referred to him as like Leather Apron before the Jack the Ripper name became big. Of course, that the Jews both. were the men who will yeah, not the, be blamed for nothing. Yeah, the Jews. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you could potentially look at the Jack the Ripper characters being an attempt to stop an anti-Semitic program from breaking out in the UK at this time, right? And I think that other people picked up on that. You have the White Chapel Club in Chicago that was founded just a few years after the Ripper killings. It made Jack the Ripper its patron saint, effectively, and it's run by all these Chicago journalists who are involved in pranks and good humor and all this other stuff, and they certainly embraced a kind of peculiar form of performance art. uh, Are they like proto-Discordians? Yeah, in a sense. I mean, they basically stage like this mock, you know, pagan funeral and stuff like that for this person involved with the 19th century suicide clubs. I mean, they had this whole crypt kind of secret hideout that was filled with these like, you know, skeletons and stuff like that, which, of course, nobody really asked where they got the skulls and what have you from. And there were ties to this group and the Fortean Society, the original one. And when you get into the Fortians, I mean, as the years go on, you can look at some pretty direct connections to uh, the Discordians. And when you get into stuff like the Zodiac killing, well, that's when it gets really interesting. Because if you've um, well, read some of the uh, theories put forward by, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the guy's name now. He's done some interviews with Fred Easton Ellis on the Zodiac killings. He did two books in it, but um. He makes a really good argument that a guy named Paul Dorr might have been involved in this with some capacity. And this is a guy who definitely was involved in Discordian circles, on the other hand. This is you know, the Zodiac killings around the same time Operation Mindfuck is going on. So, yeah, uh, it really raises the question as to how far some of this stuff went in terms of performance art and essentially some kind of warped psychological operation. (laughs) (laughs) That is wild. I was not expecting to be talking Jack the Ripper here. (laughs) I wasn't either when I started on this project, but I mean, it just seems like inevitably I, you know, going to have to get into the old Ripper in this man. I mean, God knows I didn't want to become a Ripperologist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You wouldn't think that it would be relevant. Yeah, no, exactly. Oh, okay. So where can listeners find your book? Well, as with, uh, I guess, any other book really worth its salt, practically now you get it on Amazon, like you get everything else. So uh, it is uh, right there available in physical copies on Amazon. And if you want to get an ebook, we've got it available, both PDF and the, I think it's the KDP format that Amazon does. Uh, you can find that at the farm dot store or excuse me the farm podcast dot store that is the farm podcast dot store it's our official shop for all that good stuff so it's there and on amazon along with uh physical copies of my other two books a special relationship and strange tales of the parapolitical
Nothing.